Welcome to the latest episode of Rustler's Roundup. The At The Flicks team love westerns, and in a series of pod shorts, we talk about some of the best of the genre from our lifetime. We're presenting 20 audio essays on some of the greatest western movies of the last 60 years. Saddle up and ride along with Jeff the Kid, Itchy Trigger Finger Graham, and Snake Eyes Neil. We've got to change that. Yeah. <laughs> I have found another one that you might like, Neil, and it's a genuine one from the West. It, we could call you Bad Bladder, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Snake Eyes sounds a lot better now. Yeah, no, I'll go with Stoke Snake Eyes. Uh, <laughs> Snake Eyes, Neil. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Today we are discussing the 1969 Western True Grit. This is the film for which John Wayne won the Best Actor Oscar and featured this Glen Campbell song over the main credits. One day, little girl, the sadness will leave your face as soon as you've won your fight to get just as done. Some days, little girl, you'll wonder what life's about. Great song, which was written by Elmer Bernstein and Don Black. One thing you will notice from this, the third of our Western series, is that it carries over themes from our first two films, being El Dorado and Soldier Blue. I see the El Dorado connection, or has it also starred John Wayne, but Soldier Blue, I don't see that. Don't worry, Neil. Like your golfing handicap, all will be revealed in time. (laughs) While I'm waiting for that time to arrive and your smugness to fade, I guess I'd better provide a synopsis for anyone who hasn't seen this classic Western. Set in Arkansas in 1880, although mainly filmed in Colorado, rancher Frank Ross, played by John Pickard, travels 80 miles to the town of Fort Smith on business. There, his drunk hired hand, Tom Chaney, played by Jeff Corey, shoots him dead and escapes into the nearby Indian nation. Frank's eldest child, 14-year-old Matty, played by 21-year-old Kim Darby, travels to Fort Smith to arrange collection of her father's body and sort out his business affairs. It is fair to say that Matty is not a normal teenager, very businesslike and almost emotionless much of the time. However, Matty is very focused on her mission to get revenge for her father's death. She wants Cheney caught and hung for his crime. Her plan is to hire the toughest lawman to go into the Indian Territory to capture him. The local sheriff describes to Matty the best three options. Who's the best marshal they have? Uh, Bill Waters is the best tracker. The meanest one is Rooster Cogburn, a pitiless man, double tough fear. Don't enter into his thinking. I'd have to say L.T. Quinn is the straightest. He brings his prisoners in alive. Needless to say, Matty's choice is the one-eyed Rooster Cogburn, played by John Wayne, who is initially reluctant. Cogburn finally accepts the mission when Matty agrees to his demand for a $100 payment. However, the situation gets complicated when another lawman, a Texas ranger called LaBeef, played by Glenn Campbell, turns up looking for Cheney. It turns out Cheney is also wanted in Texas for the murder of a senator. Eventually, this rather odd threesome come to an arrangement and set off together to track Cheney in the very dangerous Indian nation. It is, however, not an easy partnership, 
and the two lawmen try their best to get Matty to quit, which she refuses to do. Even Rooster has to admit. My God, she reminds me of me. What only Rooster appreciates is that Cheney has teamed up with the very dangerous outlaw Ned Pepper, played by Robert Duval. The lawman and the outlaw have history, and any confrontation between the two will be bloody. And what an ending. Although I'm getting ahead of myself there. Be warned, though, we are going to talk in detail about the ending, in case you haven't seen this version of Charles Portis's story. Speaking of Mr Portis, let's have a quick look at how this film came into being. True Grit, the novel, was published in 1968 to great acclaim. Producer Hal Wallace immediately saw the potential in it and bought the rights, bringing on board screenwriter Marguerite Roberts to adapt it. An interesting character, Roberts had been blacklisted for many years because of her refusal to name names at the HUAC, the House of Un-American Activities Committee. She had only been allowed back into the world of movie scriptwriting a few years before. Her clever approach to this story was to make some fundamental changes to the book. The novel is told in flashback by Maddie as an old woman. That wraparound is gone. Also, while the story is essentially told from Maddie's perspective, the character of Rooster Cogburn is greatly expanded in the movie. Finally, and perhaps most controversially, she changed the ending. When the script was completed, producer Hal Wallace and director Henry Hathaway started looking around for their cast. As it happened, John Wayne, thought by many to be perfect for Rooster Cogburn, was in need of a hit. His film, The Green Berets, which he also directed, great movie, had come out some months earlier and was a critical and commercial disaster. No No kidding. (laughs) He was aware of the True Grit novel and had gotten hold of Marguerite's script. As she was left-wing, and as I said, previously blacklisted, her view was that that would be the end of the script and potentially her involvement. Instead, Wayne wrote to her, calling it one of the best scripts I've ever read, the journey to John Wayne's one and only Oscar begins. John Wayne is what you remember most about this wonderful, literate, funny and exciting Western. Rooster Cogburn doesn't come on screen until 13 minutes into the movie. Until then, True Grit, while interesting, is something of a slow burn. That changes as Wayne walks into shot. He is bringing in a group of outlaws from the Indian nation, The last prisoner holds back a little, so Coburn kicks him into line. That always gets a cheer. From Jeff, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Despite that moment of action, most of John Wayne's time in the first hour of the film is played for comedy. He is a drunk, one not too far removed from the Robert Mitchum character in El Dorado. Drunk, overweight, and with an eye patch. By the way, the patch was see-through. Wayne insisted on it. You could say the performance is comic almost to the point of caricature. However, when they ride into the wild and untamed Indian nation, the character changes. More of the tough persona we all know. Yes, he may be still funny and often drunk. You'll also see what he is capable of. This is an old lawman who survived because of his experience and cunning. Another callback to El Dorado. In another setting, he could be Long John Silver with Matty as his Jim Hawkins character. On top of that, Wayne has two outstanding sequences in the film, and these certainly would have helped him bring the Oscar home. 
the first is one of the best action scenes of all time. The old man, Wayne was 61 at the time, riding a charge against four outlaws who have just insulted him. I mean to kill you in one minute, Ned, or see you hanged in Fort Smith at Judge Parker's convenience. Which will it be? I call it bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch! Angered, Rooster holds the reins in his teeth, which was a genuine move from the Old West, while shooting a pistol with one hand and reloading and firing a rifle with the other. A classic moment in cinema, and paid tribute to in Terminator 2. Then there is a more tender scene, where he is reminiscing with Matty about his life, his outlaw past, his marriage and his son. John Wayne called it about the best scene I ever did. For this scene alone, he deserved the Best Actor Oscar, although Wayne, in typical style, always maintained that Richard Burton deserved the award that year. That's very understandable, because he's Welsh. How many Oscars did Richard Burton win? Doesn't matter, Neil. It's the taking part that counts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's only a Welsh rugby fan would say. I agree that John Wayne is excellent in the film and towers over everyone, literally, as he was six foot four inches. In fact, when they were getting extras for the film, one of the requirements was that you had to be a minimum of five foot ten inches. Otherwise, you would be dwarfed by Wayne. Well, that's you two out. Back to true grit. As as I was saying, John Wayne is great, but there is so much to admire about this film. On a technical level, you have the fantastic cinematography from Lucien Ballard. The use of natural lighting is incredible throughout. The landscapes are breathtaking. It was no wonder Lucien Ballard was the go-to cinematographer for Westerns in the 1960s. Others he was involved with, include The Wild Bunch, Ride the High Country, both are upcoming in this At the Flick season, Hour of the Gun and Nevada Smith. From cinematographer to director, here we have veteran director Henry Hathaway. Like Howard Hawks in El Dorado, Hathaway is a traditionalist in his directoral approach. For the most part, the camera is fixed. It's very unlike today when now the camera is not allowed to be still for a moment. Here such moments are used sparingly such as in Rooster's final confrontation with Ned Pepper. Also, Hathaway is not afraid to distance you from the characters. Notice there are no close-ups in the movie, but plenty of wide and high-angle shots. That works particularly to highlight the distance of Matty, who is an outsider throughout the movie. Moving on to music, which Jeff usually talks about, something he will go on and on and on about until I fall asleep, on the other hand, will sum up very quickly. Like Lucien Ballard, Elmer Bernstein was the guy you went to in the 1960s when you wanted an American Western made. He did, after all, write that unforgettable music for The Magnificent Seven. For True Grit, as well as supplying the music for the song you heard earlier, he also wrote an amazing score. Check this out.
That sounds fantastic. Carry on talking about film music, Neil. I prefer your sensible view to Jeff going over the top and on and over the top and on and over the top. All this from two people who believe film music starts and ends with bland music for bland Marvel films. (laughs) Yes, it's a great score from a legendary composer, but I want to talk about the other actors. We all agree how good John Wayne is. However, it is because the other characters around him are also so good he's able to raise his game. Young Kim Darby has, as we said earlier, almost a sense of otherworldliness in her performance. Yet she wins you over, and you care about this character. She more than holds her own against the imposing figure of the Duke, that's what his fans call him, a.k.a. Rooster Cogburn. Her standout scene, and one of the best in the whole film, does not, however, include John Wayne. In that scene, it is her and the very underrated Strother Martin. In this scene, Matty goes to see horse trader Colonel Stonehill to conclude the business her father had come to town to do. She also needs money to pay Rooster Cogburn to go and capture Cheney. Stonehill thinks this is going to be an easy trade. However, as you will hear from this clip, he could not be more wrong. I will not be pushed about when I'm in the right. I'll take it up with my attorney. And I will take it up with mine, Laura Dagnett. And he will make money, and I will make money, and your lawyer will make money. And you, Mr. Lykson's auctioneer, you will fit the bill. You are a damn nuisance. Lawyer Daggett, Lawyer Daggett. Who is this famous pleader whose name I was happily ignorant of ten minutes ago? Have you ever heard of the great Arkansas River, Vicksburg and Gulf and Steamship Company? I have done business with the G-A-V-N-G, yes. Well, he was the one that forced them into receivership. Oh. They tried to mess with him. All right, come inside. It is a brilliant sequence of which we have extracted but a small section. Notice there's a lot of period dialogue lifted from the novel. That use of language by novelist Charles Portis is, I believe, the reason why the Cohen brothers were interested in remaking the story in 2010. Anyway, I digress. Not for the first time. <laughs> I will finish my bit and then explain to Neil what a thumper is. <laughs> The cast is full of first-rate actors, from Jeff Corey as the villain Cheney. He was also in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid the same year. Dennis Hopper in a small but telling role, just months before Easy Rider was released. And the great Robert Duvall, as good a Western star as there has ever been. Only Glenn Campbell seems a little out of place, and I guess that was mainly down to it being his acting debut. Even with his limitations, however, one of Campbell's best moments is his discussion with John Wayne about their respective characters' time in the American Civil War. They were on opposite sides, and while that conflict might have ended 15 years before the events of this film, it still resonated. Going further with the Civil War theme and Rooster's outlaw past, there are hints that Rooster and Robert Duvall's character Ned Pepper may not have always been enemies. Maybe a war or criminal connection, perhaps. Like Rooster, Ned too has his code of honour, which Rooster knows about. For an example of that, note how Ned reacts when time runs out on his threat to kill Matty. There may have been a code between the characters, but there certainly wasn't one on set between the actors. Robert Duvall and John Wayne almost came to blows when Duvall questioned many of Hathaway's decisions. In fact, it would be fair to say this was not a harmonious set. There were production problems throughout. It started even before filming began, 
The initial actress cast for Maddie Ross was Mia Farrow. However, she had heard how much of a bully Henry Hathaway could be, so backed out seven weeks before production was due to start. There followed a mad scramble to find another actress. It was producer Hal Wallace who signed Kim Darby based on her TV work. However, her personal life was in turmoil. She was in the process of getting divorced from the actor James Stacey, who recently featured in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and had a young child. As a result, she frequently turned up to the set unprepared, although you wouldn't know it from her performance, leading to arguments with both director and star. In fact, after filming finished, she told her agent never to get her another job with Henry Hathaway, although she has always praised John Wayne. Oh, and she had a fear of horses, so most of the time it is her stunt double you see riding with a plaster cast mask on. Fun fact, when she was a little girl and her parents were working in a club, young Kim Darby was babysat by Jack Ruby, the man who went on to kill Lee Harvey Oswald. Then there is the singer-turned-first-time actor Glenn Campbell. Both the producer and the director wanted Elvis Presley for the part of Le Beef. However, Presley's manager Tom Parker wanted a great deal of money and top billing. That was a no right there. Out went one singer and in came another, one without acting experience and one director Hathaway constantly bullied. Finally, on this subject... Let's have a brief listen to a problem famous film critic Barry Norman encountered when he was a journalist invited to the premiere to interview John Wayne. This is just the start of the story and for the full thing, along with many other wonderful tales, we recommend you track down an audience with Barry Norman. It can be found on Audible amongst other places. Anyway, this is what Mr Norman had to say. But in fact, he was all right. He was a bit flushed. You expect that after 15 double bourbons. But otherwise, he was perfectly articulate. And first, anyway, he was very friendly. And we all settled down and the Europeans courteously allowed the Americans to start the interview. And they got straight in with the really hard questions like, how did you enjoy making the movie, Duke? And he said, fine. And they wrote that down. And how did you get on with your co-star, Kim Darby, Duke? And he said, great. And they wrote that down. It was all getting very boring until somebody mentioned Vietnam. Well, in 1969, Vietnam was a huge issue all over the world, as as you obviously know. And in fact, Wayne had only just returned from a visit to Saigon, where, as far as I could make out, he was exhorting the American troops to try harder. And while he was there, his bicycle was hit by a Viet Cong bullet. Wayne wasn't on the bicycle at the time. I think he was in the officer's mess having a well-earned bourbon. But in America, the wounding of the bicycle was regarded as a very narrow brush with death. So there was much talk in the club car about the bravery of the bicycle. And I'm not sure somebody didn't even suggest that it should be awarded the Purple Heart. But it seemed to me that the introduction of Vietnam brought up the possibility of a much more interesting line of conversation. I do not normally ask actors about their political beliefs because I don't think they have any more validity than yours or mine or those of the bloke who runs the corner store. But Wayne was always sounding off about politics. And what's more, he was way, way over to the right. And he was so far to the right that I don't think he'd found a politician honestly worthy of his support since the untimely death of Attila the Hun. So I said, look, what do you make of the Vietnam War? He said, well, I'll tell you, it's easy to stop that war. And I said, really, how? He said, you get on the hotline to Kosygin and you say, you send one more bullet to Vietnam and we'll bomb Moscow. 
Well, at this point, I made a very grave error. I laughed. <laughs> well, I, I, I thought he was joking. God, I miss Barry Norman. <laughs> Don't we all, Graham? <laughs> Given all of that, it's really surprising how well it turned out, especially with an ending which is different to one of the most popular books in America at the time. Marguerite Roberts managed to skillfully capture all the elements at the end of the novel. She made it a final farewell sequence between Matty and Rooster Cogburn over the grave of her father. Matty reveals her wish about having Rooster buried in the family plot when the time comes. This is both a moving and uplifting finale as Rooster replies. Well, come to see a fat old man sometime before he has his horse jump the fence to ride off to further adventures. And there were further adventures. John Wayne played the character one more time in Rooster Cogburn in 1975 before Warren Oates took the role for True Grit, a further adventure in 1978. And of course, there's the great Coen Brothers remake in 2010. Another fun fact, Jeff Bridges was 61 when he made the film, the same age as John Wayne when he played the part. Back to the John Wayne version and one final theme worth noting. Did you notice the gun Matty carried throughout the film? Her father's Colt Walker handgun and not a Colt Dragoon, as Rooster mistakenly calls it in the film. It's her reminder of her father. At one point, it protects her in her confrontation with Cheney, and at another, it sends her backwards into a snake pit. However, she holds on to it until, at the end of the film, she gives it to Rooster Cogburn, symbolically acknowledging him as a father figure, earning that place alongside her in death. That's an interesting point, and this is where we see some parallels with Soldier Blue. A lot of the film has been the conflict between Matty and Rooster until the final reckoning, when she acknowledges how important he is to her. That generational battle was especially strong in America in the late 1960s. It is important to recognise how divided a lot of America was at that time because of the Vietnam War. That was mentioned by Barry Norman earlier, and of course it's a central theme to Soldier Blue. Yet this film, with its old-fashioned values, proved to be a massive hit. In fact, one of the top ten films of its year. Now, funnily enough, when I first saw True Grit as a teenager, BBC, Christmas Day, 1974, keep diaries, lads. I didn't really like it. It seemed slow and on occasion stagey. Over the years, I've totally revised my opinion. It's a true Western, elegant, beautiful to look at, exciting moments, including one of the best action sequences in cinema, and moving. Frighteningly, I have gone from watching it at Maddie's age now up to Rooster's. And the rest. And then rest. <laughs> Bastards. A footnote to link it to the real West. Rooster Cogburn is an amalgam of a number of real lawmen, including one Henry Heck Thomas, who retired as a marshal at the end of the 19th century. Amongst the jobs he did after was actor. He played a lawman in one of the first narrative films called The Bank Robbery in 1908. We have a link to that film in our show notes. While it hasn't aged well, the shootout at the end, staged by real ex-law enforcement officers and outlaws, has an air of authenticity about it. That is worth checking out. Thanks for that, Jeff. What do our listeners and other contributors say about True Grit? 
From Steve, a big Western fan, says True Grit is vastly underrated film and continues to delight 50 years on. Outstanding photography and music complement a script which does justice to Charles Portis's outstanding novel. Don't believe the nonsense about a sentimental Oscar. This is right up there with John Wayne's best performances. From Derek, in my opinion, one of Wayne's better movies, the meadow scene is still a standout for me with Wayne spinning that Winchester to reload. From Pat, outside of the searchers, it was John Wayne's best acting performance. Phil, Wayne's performance was pretty good and an enjoyable Western. From Darren, good movie, I liked it. That's short and to the point, Darren, like it. Elijah has an expanded take. John Wayne's presence and personality is unique. However, I think Kim Darby in the role of the mature teen is subpar. And professional critics say, Roger Ebert, it is one of the most delightful, joyous, scary movies of all time. Vincent Camby of the New York Times said, a marvellous rambling frontier fable packed with extraordinary incidences, amazing encounters, noble characters and virtuous rewards. And lastly, Scott Tobias in The Guardian said, it may not have the gravitas of Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven, but it's the same type of performance. The reckoning of a Western gunslinger who's seen and done terrible things, lost the people he loved and seems intent on living out his remaining days alone. If we have now persuaded you to check this out or revisit it again, please let us know what you think. In the meantime, we'll play out with some of Elmer Bernstein's score for True Grit. Okay, Neil, put the fake eye patch away. It's time to ride out, as I explain to you, with a demonstration, what a thumper is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeehaw! Yeehaw! Yeehaw!